You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. In the United States of America... It may not be an exceptional country in its own right. I think it is, but it may not be. Some people differ. But by God's grace, this is the country that I call home. It is right and good to love the country that you're from, to love it, to want what is best for it, to seek its welfare. It is right and good that I have a love for my country that sees me wanting to do it good. Don't you go apologizing either for that sentiment. It is not evil or untoward any more than if you loved the family you were born into or the church that you attend, if you love the city you live in, if you love what you do for a living, it's good to love those things and to embrace them and to want them to flourish and do well, to celebrate them, to give thanks to God for them and seek to be good stewards. On that note, you can go back and listen to my episode from yesterday, Restorative Conservatism, episode 296. This is episode 297 for those of you who have a hard time counting that high. We're almost to 300. None of you have a hard time counting. What am I saying? I can count on you guys. You guys can count on me getting to episode 300 very shortly. And we will do a recap of the past 100 episodes. What were the high points? What were the low points? I'll be honest with you. And I'll tell you which episodes did not get much play and why I think that might be. But Last episode, I talked about something I'm terming restorative conservatism, because we're past the point of just conserving. We have to restore. We need a resurgence. We need a revival. And let it begin in us. Go back and check that episode out. It's a little bit hard to follow. At some points, perhaps, maybe. Hopefully, I was being clear and not just rambling, but I think... That's what is key here, is we've got to think of this as a restoration first, then conserving. And it's interesting because I think to myself of a conversation I had a number of months ago, even years ago. It's a long-standing, long-running conversation ongoing with my cousin, Micah Hirschberger, in which we've talked about how whether you have an evolutionary or a creationist mindset as to our origins as a species, where does all of this matter come from and why does it matter, makes a big difference in what you expect in the present day, what you expect in the future, and how you conduct yourself. We too often misunderstand, underappreciate the importance of the creation mandate and the creation narrative 
to how we see ourselves in right now, in the here and now. Whether it was millions and millions and millions of years ago, or whether it was a few thousand years ago, that makes a big difference in how we feel about what's going on right now. If the creation was originally good, by God's design, he created everything ex nihilo, said that it was very good. We were made to live forever. We were made for eternity, created in his image. Well, that informs our sensibilities in how we think of ourselves, how we think of one another. So also, when you believe that there is such a thing as original sin, you have a a certain guardedness, but also a certain realism. If you're expecting that people are inherently good, when you find out that they aren't in small pockets here and there, it might really rock your world. What? You mean people sometimes don't do what they ought to, or they don't say what they ought to, they don't think what they ought to, they don't feel what they ought to, they don't respond as they should? (gasps) I'm shocked. Oh, wait, no, I'm not. I'm not shocked, because according to the scriptures, man was good as God created him. But it pleased God, and God has this prerogative. He has every right to allow things to work out this way, to orchestrate them in such a way that man has the ability to choose to disobey God in the garden and fall. And now the whole race fallen, the only escape route is through Christ. But if you have an evolutionary mindset, then you're very comfortable with randomness, you're very comfortable with nihilism, And the combination of randomness and nihilism makes for some rampant experimentation. Yes, every now and then you might hit something, especially if you are enjoying the cut flower ethics benefits of centuries of built-up Western tradition, Christian life and thought, which has been developed disproportionately by God's grace in the West. It isn't just Judeo-Christian value, Judeo-Christian thinking, but it is definitely, undeniably, indisputably Judeo-Christian Western civilization, distinctly Judeo-Christian in its assumptions, in its framework. So therefore, to attack Western civilization invariably means attacking the root of a lot of our ways of thinking, which are Christian. So for the folks who say, I'm a Christian, but here's my long list of problems with Western civilization. We need to tear down Western civilization, start fresh, elevate all other traditions. Well, wait a second. How many babies are you throwing out with how much bathwater? I'm not denying that there's bathwater. But we have to work at a restorative conservatism. It's too late to get those babies in bathwater back to the condition that they were in decades ago, even a few centuries ago. The task before us now is to just go get the baby, right? We didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but somebody go get that baby and make sure it's all right and clean it up. Clean that baby boy, that baby girl up, get some clothes on them, go back and check out my episode from yesterday. But on that note, I see a poll at not the bee. 
being referenced. Nearly 80% of Americans say the U.S. is in a state of decay. A poll from the Trafalgar Group, partnered with Convention of States Action, found 76.8% of Americans believe American society and culture is in a state of decay. Only 9.8% of respondents said the country's society and culture is in a state of progress, while 13.4% said they were unsure. The view that the U.S. is in a state of decay received partisan agreement across political parties, 61% of Democrats, 85.9% of Republicans, and 81.8% of no party or other independents, if you will. The poll was conducted between December 17th and 21st with 1,076 likely general election voters across the U.S. Quote, these horrific numbers go beyond politics to the heart of who we are as a nation and a people, said Mark Meckler, president of the Convention of States Action Group, about the poll results. Quote, Americans have always been fueled by hope and optimism and now are united in disgust. Our leaders in Washington, D.C. are setting the tone, and clearly we need dramatic changes there in both parties in the next election, but ultimately it's the grassroots citizens of this great nation, everyday Americans, fighting to return us to our foundations who are going to get us back on course. By permanently reigning in the federal government and restoring the balance of power between D.C. and the states to its original constitutional design, we have an opportunity to change these numbers now and for the future. End quote. Now, a couple of things here. For one, this plays off the topic of yesterday's podcast very well. And again, I think we have to be very intentional and basic in the best sense about what we build a conservative resurgence off of. What sort of a foundation is going to allow for restorative conservatism because we're in a state of decay. If this were a bridge and it were falling apart and you have cracks in the pillars there and you've got pylons that are half missing there, before you can conserve that bridge, you're going to have to restore it. If it were an old house, and I've lived in old houses my entire life, I've never lived in a brand new house before. Someday I'd like to, but I haven't ever. I remember back in Ohio, we had a house in Hillsboro that was built in the mid-1800s. And that house had beautiful woodwork, but it had not been maintained very well. The floors especially were in a very bad state. Dry, cracked underneath the rugs, and they needed sanded down. Some of the planks needed replaced. They needed a fresh coat of something to moisturize them and to seal them. Before you can conserve that house, you're going to have to do something with the floors. Before you can keep that house standing, you're going to have to repaint the outside because the paint's coming off left and right. And oh, by the way, the roof is in sorry shape. So if you don't want that falling in, we're going to have to replace the roof. And before you know it, you have a house in decent shape, maybe not perfect shape. It may never be perfect, but you can make that house beautiful with some hard work and some investment. But you have to have a vision. You have to see that as something worth saving. And you have to realize that restoring that house, however much it's going to cost in sweat and 
expenditures of money. It's still going to be cheaper than building a brand new house from scratch. You may have money for the restoration and you may not have money to build a brand new house. And more than that, you conserving that thing that is now going on 200 years old, you have something very rare and special. Why not conserve it rather than letting it fall apart or knocking it down to build something fresh? You already have a house there. Let's just take care of it. Let's fix it up and then let's maintain it. And it won't be so hard to maintain once we fix it up, but we got to do that front end work. And for a lot of folks, they're not going to be able to see the vision of maintaining something that's in a state of decay. So you're going to have to help them catch that vision. Sounds to me like from these polling numbers, the vast majority, four out of five Americans may be needing to hear a vision for a restoration of this country. Because guess what? Just like a house, it is not conducive to the health and happiness of you and the people you know and love to have this country falling down around us. We live here. Is that enough reason for us to value it, to roll up our sleeves, to take care of it, to protect it, to preserve it? I think so. On another note, there is a second link at Not The Bee that I want to share with you. Jessica Swietoniowski, am I saying that right? Swietoniowski, something like that. Jessica at Not The Bee shares this viral song from Christian Canadian artist Matt Brevner anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine mandate single, More of Us, on January 4th, just one day before the province of Ontario went back into lockdown. Of course, they don't want you referring to it as a lockdown. As she points out, apparently Ontario is terming this temporarily moving to a modified step two of the roadmap to reopen. Right, okay. This is why nobody trusts politicians. (laughs) Allow me to introduce you. (laughs) But this song, it really is something. Hopefully they don't take it down from YouTube. I'm going to go ahead and play at least a portion of it for you now. And in that way, we will conserve (laughs) this song for posterity, at least a portion of it. I'll put a link in the episode description so you can go check out the full version. But take a listen. This is Matt Brevner with More of Us. I can't help but look around and feel like things are getting out of hand. We've been told to trust the science, but the science just doesn't make sense. They say it isn't mandatory, but they also say you jab at your job. But if it doesn't stop the spread, it makes it feel like this is just a facade. What about the healthcare workers? What about the frontline nurses? How quickly we forget that they were working 18 hours a day. What about informed consent? What about due diligence? It seems a country that I used to call home is surely slipping away. And 
that is Matt Brevner with more of us released just a few days ago and I am moved I get goosebumps not that it's all about the goosebumps but I get goosebumps listening to that because the questions he's asking are the sorts of questions that we should be asking when we're following Jeremiah 29 7 these are the sorts of questions that we should be asking when we're seeking the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile. And he's a Canadian, so the country he loves is Canada. <laughs> eh? Canada is near and dear to him. It's not near and dear to me. Canada is the attic. Mexico's the basement, Canada's the attic. The USA is where it's at, in my humble opinion, my completely biased opinion. But it's rightful that he loves his country. It's good that he loves his country. That's his country. That's where his family and his friends live. That's where his life has been built. It's good for him to seek the welfare of that country, that city to which he's been brought. And it's good for him to be pointing out, this just doesn't make sense, right? Let me point out some inconsistencies and be very direct. This is tyranny. This is oppression. This is mistreatment. This is disrespectful. It's dangerous. There's more of us than there are of them, which is not a threat. That's an encouragement to recognize when it's necessary to say, no, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go along with that. You have no right to require this of me, to request this of me. It would be wrong if I complied. It would only embolden you. No. Learn to say no. On another note, on a very related note, I want you to check out a little clip here from The Hill. This is Kim Iverson, whose work I'm not familiar with, but I would like to get more familiar with. If this is any indication, Kim Iverson, YouTube video here. What is mass formation psychosis? Is the public being gaslit? She asks. Let's see what you think. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, the term mass formation psychosis trended over the weekend with so many searches it broke the internet. When people went to search for the term on Google, a couple of strange things happened. Some people saw this odd disclaimer from Google saying the results were changing quickly and that it would take time for results to be added by reliable sources. What does this even mean? I thought when you Googled something, it would bring up sites relating to the topic. Why would Google need time to add results by quote unquote reliable sources? Sounds like they're censoring search results. Well, a few hours later, when people searched for the term, a bunch of sites began to pop up claiming it was a new far right buzzword or one attributed to anti-vaxxers. Well, it's very difficult to find any information using Google. So I had to turn to DuckDuckGo in order to find any relevant information. So what is mass formation psychosis? Well, the term came recently from the Joe Rogan, Dr. Robert Malone interview that aired this past Friday, but was also heard and explained in more detail during Dr. Peter McAuliffe's interview with Rogan. We're in what's called a mass formation psychosis. This is very important. I give credit to Dr. Matthias Desmet in the University of Ghent in Belgium, and recently Dr. Mark McDonald, psychiatrist from LA. Mark McDonald's got a new book out, 
the United States of Fear, describing how the mass psychosis developed. What your listeners need to know is a mass psychosis is when there is a groupthink that develops that's so strong that it leads to something horrific. And the examples are these mass suicides that occur in these religious cults. The example is Nazi Germany, when people walk into gas chambers and were gassed. These horrific things, and, and four elements here, it's very important, Joe. First, there must be a period of prolonged isolation, lockdowns. Number two, there must be a, a, a withdrawal of things taken away from people that they used to enjoy. That's happened. Number three, there must be constant, incessant, free-floating anxiety. All this news cycle, all the, the deaths and the hospitalizations, more, more variant mutant strains, everything. People are becoming scared over and over again. And the last thing, number four, the capper. The capper is there must be a single solution offered by an entity in authority. And in this case is clear. Worldwide, the solution was vaccination. Everybody must take the vaccination. It's not a U.S. program. It's not a European program. It's everywhere. And you know what, Joe? It doesn't matter what vaccine it is. It could be uh, Chinavac, Coronavac. It could be Novavax. It could be Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. &J. It's interesting that it doesn't even matter what vaccine it is. It's just take a vaccine, take any vaccine. And so what mass psychosis says is, number four, the solution, there's no limit to the absurdity of the solution. So Dr. McCullough attributes the idea to Dr. Matthias Desmet, a professor of clinical psychology at Ghent University in Belgium, one of the top universities in the world. The four conditions that lead up to mass formation psychosis result in people who are radically intolerant and people who are irrational in their solutions. So in regards to this pandemic, we're seeing this intolerance of the unvaccinated, where many people who consider themselves very open-minded or even quote-unquote woke are saying things they believe, are saying that they believe the unvaccinated should be removed from society in some way. So the most common way to remove the unvaccinated so far has been through requiring vaccine passports to enter restaurants, bars, movie theaters, malls, and other venues, requiring vaccine passports to work or even travel. So this is all done in an attempt to not only encourage people to get vaccinated, but also to reduce risk, which people believe is attributable to the unvaccinated. So there are a lot of people in society right now who I would consider to be radically intolerant of unvaccinated people and will go to great lengths to stay away from them. And many people, like myself, believe their solutions are irrational. The virus seems to be spreading through vaccinated and unvaccinated populations alike, so segregating based on vaccination status doesn't make any sense to me. Exactly right. Exactly. Check out the rest of that video if you'd like to. I'll post a link for that as well in the description for this podcast episode. But that's Kim Iverson. It doesn't make sense to me either that we would remove the unvaccinated from society. Why do that? Why is that okay? It's one thing to quarantine people who are sick. It's quite another thing to say we're going to quarantine people indefinitely, perhaps perpetually, relegate them to a second-class status based on whether they are willing to submit to us or not. It sounds like the formation of a caste system, quite honestly. Here's the underclass. The underclass is the folks who are skeptical of, quote-unquote, the science in capitalized form, as if it's a deity. The folks who are not on board with the progressive program, you guys get to the back of the bus. You guys lose your jobs. You lose your positions of authority and influence. I'm not so sure that I agree 
with calling it psychosis and giving a psychological explanation. Again, this goes back to my episode from yesterday. Are people inherently good? If you presume that people are inherently good, you might try to make the appeal that it was temporary insanity that caused them to do something that they shouldn't have. But even there, insanity, mental illness, is a consequence of the fall. It may not always be intentional, deliberate, diabolical, but sometimes it very much is. And sometimes in our day and age, with the presumption that people are basically good, fundamentally good, we give far too much credit to mental illness and we don't assign enough responsibility to people themselves for their own actions, their own conduct. We don't make people responsible for their own actions. We don't want to be responsible for our actions, so we say, it's not your fault. It was a chemical imbalance. You temporarily lost your mind. What, what if people are not inherently good? What, what, what if people have something called original sin and are accountable for their actions? And what if God sets the standard? See, that's the trouble. When you create a vacuum, nature abhors a vacuum. Horror vacui, nature abhors a vacuum. Something is going to want to fill that vacuum. If you create a vacuum where a standard of right conduct is concerned, where a standard of truth is concerned, then other things fill the vacuum. And when anything goes, when we're a very permissive society with regards to sexuality and procreation, with regards to what do you do with somebody you're not married to, what do you do with your own body, with regards to abortion, we're very, very permissive on the progressive side of the aisle, you have to have some limits and some checks. When things spiral into a state of decay, as nearly 80% of Americans right now report believing we are in, you have to start putting some checks on people's behavior. But if you've rejected God's standard, what do you have to fill the vacuum? In this case, it would seem you have ideological dividing lines where the unvaccinated, those who are not getting with the program, now with the response to COVID, but soon enough with the response to climate change, those folks will not be assumed good motives. They will not be assumed to be fundamentally good, inherently good. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We know that. That's a, a truth that is built into the fabric of reality by God himself. In the absence of God's standard, we're going to start coming up with crazy, evil definitions of what sins need to be atoned for and by whom. And it won't matter that people are being destroyed. It doesn't matter. It already doesn't matter. It hasn't mattered for two years to the godless. So long as the rains come again, we're content to sacrifice however many thousands on the pyramid of the sun. Just let the rains come and let me get back to life because that's all that really matters to me. We shouldn't ascribe the complicity of 
the majority with these measures to insanity. We should call it what it is, evil. It's evil. It's wicked. You're more afraid of what people will think of you than you are of what God has said and who God is and what God has promised. You're more concerned with your own pleasure, your own gratification, than you are with loving your neighbor, loving God. If you were more concerned with loving God and loving your neighbor, you wouldn't go along with this. You'd write songs like Mr. Matt Brevner. At a certain point, it's not enough to just quietly sit this one out, wait until it all blows over. At a certain point, we are the ones who must actively seek the welfare of the city and speak up. Speak up on behalf of the truth, on behalf of those who are being led away to the slaughter, as Proverbs says, rescue those who are being led away to the slaughter. And right there in that same passage of Proverbs, there's a warning to those who want to say when they are called to account for this by God himself. We didn't know. Oh, we had no idea. We had no idea that all these innocent Jewish men, women, and children were being taken away to gas chambers by the millions. We had no idea that was happening. God knows the answer to that. God knows the truth of that. God knows that you did know. And you turned a blind eye to it. You didn't rescue those who were being led away to the slaughter. God will know in this case too. That thought, that assurance, that promise should, for one thing, cause us to be very careful how we engage now. For another thing, it should give us a boldness where fear of man is concerned. Don't fear man who can only kill the body. Fear God, Jesus says. To end on a happier note, I want you to listen to just one last clip. One more clip, and we'll call it good for this episode. This one was sent to me by my neighbor, J.P. Chavez, neighbor two houses down, who I haven't seen quite as much of here lately because we've just been kind of isolating ourselves with my new work schedule. I worked Monday through Sunday this past week, training and then starting my rotation with the new job and besides that my wife is very pregnant she's great with child you can pray for her that delivery comes soon Andrew will be delivered soon but also my wife will be delivered from (laughs) being so great with child she is very ready but JP Chavez sends me this link And he just recently did a marathon watching all the Lord of the Rings movies with their kiddos. And he was gracious enough to invite our kiddos over. He and Monica were both gracious enough to open their home, as they often do, to our children. Their children and our children just kind of go back and forth, back and forth, which is great. But JP was asking me, how you get into Lord of the Rings. Not that it's not good, but it's just he has a harder time getting into it. But he sent me this, and I love him for it. This is J.R.R. Tolkien, John Ronald Rule, 
Tolkien, who, if you didn't know, led C.S. Lewis, Clive Staple Lewis, to the Lord, was a friend of, close personal friend of C.S. Lewis. This is J.R.R. Tolkien narrating the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, the Ride of the Rohirrim from Lord of the Rings. Take a listen. Now silently the host of Rohad moved forward into the field of Gondor, pouring in slowly but steadily like the rising tide through bridges and a dike that men have thought secure. But the mind and will of the black captain were bent wholly on the falling city, and as yet no tidings came to him, warning that his designs held any flaw. After a while the king led his men away somewhat eastward to come between the fires of the siege and the outer fields. Still they were unchallenged and still Theoden gave no signal. At last he halted once again. The city was now nearer. A smell of burning was in the air and a very shadow of death. The horses were uneasy. But the king sat upon Snowmane, motionless, gazing upon the agony of Minas Tirith, as if stricken suddenly by anguish or by dread. He seemed to shrink down, cowed by age. Merry himself felt as if a great weight of horror and doubt had settled on him. His heart beat slowly. Time seemed poised in uncertainty. They were too late. Too late was worse than never. Perhaps Theoden would quail, bow his old head, turn, slink away to hide in the hills. Then suddenly Merry felt it at last, beyond doubt, a change. Wind was in his face. Light was glimmering. Far, far away in the south, the clouds could be dimly seen as remote grey shapes rolling up, drifting. Morning lay beyond them. But at that same moment there was a flash as if lightning had sprung from the earth beneath the city. For a searing second it stood dazzling far off in black and white, its topmost tower like a glittering needle. And then as the darkness closed again there came rolling over the fields a great boom. At that sound the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again. And rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden! Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter! Spear shall be shaken, shield be splintered, sword day, red day, ere the sun rises! Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor! With that he seized a great horn from Guzlaf, his banner bearer, and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder. And straightway all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain, and a thunder in the mountains. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. Suddenly the king cried to Snowmane, and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Elmer rode there, the white horse tail on his helm, floating in his speed. And the front of the first arrow roared like a breaker foaming to the shore, but Theoden could not be overtaken. Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins. And he was borne upon snowmen like a god of old, even as Oromi the Great in the battle of the Valar when the world was young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green above the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning in a wind from the sea and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and the terror overtook them, and they fled and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city.
Mm-mm-mm. Mm. Good stuff. Good stuff. I am not ashamed to admit such brings tears to my eyes. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.